Well, good morning. I know that winter's only just begun, but I want you to think in your mind's eye, think on to summer. Imagine yourself on a beautiful beach holiday or sitting by the pool somewhere. And what kind of person are you like in the sunshine? Do you love it? Are you there soaking up the rays, loving getting a nice deep bronze tan? Or are you a bit more like me, somebody who loves the shade? Um, for me, I mean, I sunburn so easily, I have to be careful standing in front of the microwave um, sometimes. Not literally, but I do have to bring a bottle of liquid shade everywhere I go, some sun cream to put on every bit of bare skin, make sure that I don't get sunburn. I love the shade. Um, shade is something really more, much more comfortable for me than the sunshine, but it's also something life-saving. I mean, if you've ever had heat stroke or just been in a really hot country and felt the relief of going into somewhere shady and cool, heat, uh, heat stroke can be fatal and shade can be something that saves your life. Well, what about in your life? I mean, day by day, what's your shade, the shade that keeps you from the heat of life and the difficulties of life. Where do you feel safe? Where do you feel a bit more relaxed? Is it literally in your home? I mean, under your roof, somewhere you can just put your feet up and feel safe. Maybe it's out shopping and just buying stuff and, and kind of making yourself, I don't know, giving yourself experiences that you can enjoy. Or maybe it's out with a, co with a friend for coffee. You know, somebody that you just, get on with really well and you love to pour your heart out to them. Maybe that's the place that you feel safe and shaded. Or maybe it's money. Maybe it's checking your, your mobile banking app and just making sure that you've got enough for this month or just making sure that the savings are ticking along, growing nicely, just making sure that you're doing okay. Well, this Psalm is all about shelter, shelter from the dangers of life, restful shade from from the heat of life. It ties together lots of the threads that we've been looking at. If you've been with us over the last few months, this psalm kind of pulls together lots of the different themes that we've been looking at um, in these ancient psalms. And this one is about shade and shelter. You can see that right from the very beginning. This psalmist, this singer, this writer loves his shade. And what's his shade? God. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will, dress, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. God is the one who says shelter. That's the first thing I want you to see, that our God is a shelter. He uses four different words for God, by the way. That's maybe something you could pick up and, uh, and chew over later on. I don't have time to get into it now. But four different names for God. And each time God is his refuge, his shelter, something to keep him safe, his shadow. What kind of protection? What kind of safety? What kind of shelter is he? Well, he's a wall and a wing. Did you see that in verse four? He'll cover you with his feathers and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. He's a wall. He's impregnable strength. He's bristling with shields and spears. Absolutely nothing is going to get through him. This is a place, he is a place where you can take a break from the battle of life, where you can rest secure. Castles are like that, aren't they? They're solid and they're dependable. They're brilliant in a crisis, but they're also pretty cold and drafty. I mean, they're a lovely place for a Sunday afternoon walk, but you wouldn't want to live in Castlecarrickenna, at least not as it is at the moment. It's kind of safe. It's powerful, but it's not somewhere you would want to make your home. And the good news is that there is much more to God than pure power. He's not just a wall, but he's a wing, a wing that covers you with gentle, downy warmth, that draws you in, that cutches you close to a beating heart, a heart that beats with love and affection, with patience and with comfort. This is our God. He's a wall and he's a wing. He's safety and he's a safety who draws us close. Now just think about that wing for a moment. Wings are fragile, aren't they? 
So I read somebody this week who said this is a picture of a mother bird who shelters her young from burning heat or rain and cold only by bearing those things herself. So this God that we have, who's a wall and a wing, is a God whose comfort, whose protection is sacrificial. It's costly. It costs him something to wrap us up and keep us safe. I mean, this is what we're looking for, isn't it? Isn't this like the end of human exploring? A home where you could live safely, that's solid enough to keep out the wind and the rain and comfortable enough to put your feet up, to be where you belong, full of familiar smells and soft furnishings, warm fire and warm smiles. If you found a home like that, you would put a bid on it straight away, wouldn't you? And, and make it your place. Well, what about if you found a God like that? What if the God of the universe was like this? Wouldn't you want to make him your own? Actually, that's exactly what the the psalmist does in verse 2. He says, look, I found this God who's shelter and shadow and rest. And so I will say of the Lord, it's not just going to be a God out there. He's my refuge, my fortress, not just the God that I know about, but he's my God, the God in whom I trust. I wonder if you can say that this morning. Maybe you've even been in church for years and years and years, but God is still something that you know about but he's not really yours. Now this God is our shelter, my shelter. Is he yours? I mean, it's not something that comes naturally, that kind of a thing. We're so prone to wander off, to making our home anywhere else except for God. That's kind of understandable to a degree, isn't it? Because because we don't see him. It's much easier to make your home in something visible, to make your home in a person, to kind of rest and trust and hope in them to get you through life's hard times. But But people can fail us through no fault of their own. People just grow and change. Hearts grow cold. Sometimes people move away or they pass away. So maybe we build our our safety, our home in money instead, in our pension plans, in, um, in our investments. But money runs out. Investments go bad. Economies crash. And even if they don't, I mean, when was the last time you bought something that really left you satisfied and feeling full and safe for more than a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Money runs out and our bodies too, even if we trust in our own health and we keep ourselves strong and we commit ourselves to our wellness, there'll come a day where we, where we won't be well, where no supplement, no workout, no life coach, no doctor will be able to help us anymore. Our bodies, our bodies crumble with age. See, all these places that we make our home with ourselves, with other people, with the stuff that we can gather around us, all of those things are like building houses out of sandstone. They feel solid to begin with, but eventually the wind and the rain batter and they just dissolve. So this psalmist is giving us an invitation. He's saying, I found a shelter. I found a fortress that will withstand anything. I found a wing that will bear you up and wrap you up. So come on, will you come with me and come home? That's what all the Psalms are inviting us to do. That's what this one is doing for us today. He's saying, will you take this God to be your refuge, your strength, your fortress, the one in whom you trust? By the way, that's something that we don't just do at the beginning, you know, when we become Christians. When you start following God, it's something that you do every day. As you swing your legs out of bed every morning, every mundane day, you can say this. God, you are my refuge. You are my fortress. You are my God. I want to trust you today. All of my hopes, I want to have them in your hands. You can do them on every, you can say this on every mundane day. And also when you take those same tired legs into that 
dot disappointment, where you where you're going to get that diagnosis that will change the path of your life. You can take these same words and say, God, you are my refuge. You are my shelter. You are my strength. I trust in you. You are my God and I belong to you. Will you keep me safe through this all? See, this is something that is a, a summary of what it means to be a Christian, to put yourself into the hands of God, that he would be your God and you would be his. That's what the next thing is that I want you to see. It's actually at the end of the psalm. We looked at the beginning. Now come with me to the end. Have a look at verse 14. It's not just us that's speaking to God, but God speaks to us. Did you see that? Verse 14. God says, because he loves me, I'll rescue him. I'll protect him for he acknowledges my name. God sees us doing all the things that we've been called to do in the Psalms, all the little pictures of trust that we've had, that looking at him as a shepherd and putting our hand in his, the putting our roots down deep into his truth so that we grow up like a tree that bears fruit. The climbing up the hill, following him. You know, he's won a victory. He's beaten a path up through death into life. And so we follow him. We trust in him. We put our lives to him. We bend down like that deer panting for the water and we drink from him. We come into his presence and we dwell with him. God sees us doing that, trusting him. And he says, I'll rescue them. These are my people. See, he hears us and he sees us and he speaks. So the first thing was God is our shelter. Our God is a shelter. Now our God sees and speaks. And what does he say? Well, he says seven beautiful things. One for each day of the week. He could take these home and meditate on these once each day. What does he say? Well, it's like a sweet shop and a, not a disappointing sweet shop. It's, I mean, you know, at Christmas time, sometimes you get those selection boxes and they're they look so wonderful on the outside. And then you open them up and there's like three fun-sized things spread apart in this big tray. Well, this, these verses, what God says is not like that. It's much more like Charlie Bucket coming home from Mr. Wonka's marvellous factory, riding on top of a great truckload, a lifetime supply of chocolate and sweetness. This is what these few verses are. What does God say? I'll rescue him. I'll protect him. He'll call on me and I'll answer him. That, that means I'll answer his prayers. I'll hear and answer his prayers. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. Just go back through this week, one a day, and chew those things over. This is what God says to you. As he sees you trusting him, this is what God gives to you. As you give yourself to him, he gives everything, all his self to you. See, God opens up a sweet shop for us to enjoy. I want you to go and enjoy that this week and see that God saves. That's our third thing. He shelters, he speaks, and he saves. This is all sandwiched in the middle. It's kind of working out all those seven different things that God has given to us in lots of different kind of poetic, beautiful, really, I mean, really striking kind of ways. Did you hear them as we went through? He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, the hunter, and from the deadly pestilence, the plague. That's in verse three or verse seven. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't overcome you. No evil shall befall you. No plague will come near your tent. No, on their hands, angels will bear you up, lest your, your foot strike against a stone. There's going to be spiritual help from the spiritual realms to get you through anything. And what do you make of those promises? What do you make of those things? There really are great fridge magnet fodder, aren't they? Like the, the kind of things that you could copy and paste into a beautiful picture and then post it on Instagram. And people would love it. They're really beautiful verses, great promises of God, and they're true promises. 
God does rescue in remarkable ways. There's loads of wonderful stories we could pick on through history, but a couple that I've come across recently. One is about a school, a school for um, for missionary children, children of, of uh, men and women who'd, had, who'd gone to, uh, to work in Africa. There's a story about a school not too long ago um, who, who were really under pressure. There was a civil war in the country, uh, all sorts of violence and horrible things happening. And one night, people around the world were woken up to pray for this school and woken up to pray for them. And what was happening at that very moment was that armed men had encircled the school and were getting closer and closer and closer. The kids and the teachers had all huddled together in one classroom and could see out the window the lights of these armed men coming closer and closer to the school. And then they stopped. And then they didn't come any closer all the way through the night and then melted away in the morning. And sometime later, one of the teachers in the school tried to find out why the soldiers didn't come closer and found somebody in town who could explain it and said, well, they tried to come closer, but they reported that as soon as they got close to the school, there was just a ring of soldiers around the school. And the teacher said, well, what do you mean there weren't any soldiers? We don't even have any weapons in the school. There weren't soldiers guarding us. Well, yeah, they were. They found a ring of soldiers dressed in white around the school. I mean, how do you explain that? There weren't any soldiers, so what had happened? Well, angels had come and rescued them. The kids, the teachers couldn't see them, but those soldiers could see, and it protected. They protected the children and the teachers in that school. That's God hearing the prayers of his people and sending angels to rescue. But then there's all sorts of other times where we've prayed and God hasn't done that, where we've prayed and there haven't been a army of angels come to swoop in and rescue. Plenty of stories, not just in our lives, but in human history where much worse things have happened. And so we can, with those things in mind, those kind of bad stories, as well as the good stories, we read this psalm and begin to feel like it's a bit unreal, don't we? I mean, like what on earth is going on? Is he just taking poetic license? Or is he blind to how the world can really be? Because we prayed and, and God didn't seem to answer. Bad stuff has happened in our lives uh, when this psalm seems to say that it wouldn't. I mean, does Psalm 91 really mean to say that we won't ever catch any kind of plagues? I mean, does that mean that we're going to be see that we're, as Christians, if we trust God enough, that we will be immune from the coronavirus? So, you know, no need to have masks, no need to be cautious. Or does it mean that we'll never get any other disease, that we won't fall in battle, that we won't experience any kind of evil, that you won't hurt your feet on any stones? So next time you go rock pooling with your children or grandchildren, no need to wear shoes, no need to worry, because, you know, you won't strike your foot against a stone if you're a Christian. Obviously doesn't mean that, does it? But then it sort of does seem like it is saying that. Like it is some kind of good luck charm that says we're always going to be protected from every kind of sadness and suffering. Is that how we should read the psalm? No, it isn't. One writer puts it like this. One great caution against reading the psalm in that way is that this is the way Satan used it. That in the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert, you can read it in Matthew 4, one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus. There's this story of Jesus appearing to Jesus, of Satan, sorry, appearing to Jesus and trying to throw him off his mission. And he quotes these verses. He takes him up to a high rooftop and he says, throw yourself down. If you're really the son of God, if God is really pleased with you, throw yourself down because it's written, Psalm 91, he'll command his angels concerning you. That's verse 11. And on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's verse 12. Satan quotes this to Jesus, essentially saying, look, true followers of Jesus, true followers of God will never suffer. 
And if they do, then either God's promises have failed or you fail to follow him. That's what Satan says. And it's not just him. There's plenty of people who call themselves Christian teachers on our Christian TV, ch TV channels who say the same thing, who say that the Christian life should be one of victory, of constant happiness and nothing ever going wrong for you. And that if it ever does, then it's your fault. You haven't had enough faith. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't claimed the promises hard enough. They're basically saying if you're suffering, it's your fault. How cruel is that? Jesus never says that. The tragedy of that position is that it ends up accusing yourself. It ends up on you just getting sucked in to your own heart, accusing yourself or accusing God and walking away from him. It doesn't bring you closer to him. It moves you away. That's Satan's way of reading this psalm. So how can we avoid that? How else can we understand and read this? I mean, what is going on here? Well, look closely. Look at verse 15. We looked at it already. God promises to be with us in trouble. Or verse 5. You won't fear the terror of the night. There seems to be something going on in this psalm where God does rescue through trouble in such a way that it's as if it never came near you in the first place. How do we get our heads around that? Well, we need to go to Jesus. We need to look at how he spoke in a really similar way to this. Look at Luke 21. That's another biography of Jesus. And Luke 21, he's speaking to his followers, preparing them for all the suffering that they were going to go through. And he says to them, in one paragraph, like basically in the same, almost in the same breath, he says, some, they will put some of you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. Or another time, Jesus is at a funeral of a very close friend. This is in John chapter 11. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen carefully. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me, in Jesus, will never die. Do you believe this? And then a few minutes later, Jesus raises this man from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll live, even though you die. Some of you will die, but, but even through death, not a hair of your head will perish. How do you make sense of that? Well, we need to not just hear what Jesus said, but look at what he did. See Jesus living this psalm. Because Jesus didn't embrace Satan's way of reading it, didn't embrace Satan's path of, you know, nothing ever going wrong if God really was on your side. Jesus embraced the path of suffering. Thorns, a crown of thorns, really was pressed into his scalp. They whipped and cut up his back. Nails really pierced his hands. A spear tore through his heart. He really was killed by his enemies. The best person who had ever lived, God in the flesh, the, the only person who has never wandered away from God's presence, who's never built a house anywhere else but in God's presence, who's always had God, his father's wing over him, who's always trusted him, always looked at him, always drank from his streams of life. That man died. Jesus wasn't rescued, at least not immediately. And that story is repeated in the lives of Christians down the centuries. I'm sure I've told you fairly recently the story of a man called Jim Elliott, He's an American Christian who traveled to Ecuador in the 1950s to share the good news with a, with a tribe that were really isolated, far out in the jungle, a tribe that had killed lots of people who had come close to them. But Jim Elliot went with four of his friends to try and share the good news of Jesus with them, and they never came home. They found their bodies speared to death in the river. Do you know what his wife did? She wrote a book after his death. She wrote a book and called that book Shadow of the Almighty. If that sounds familiar to you, Shadow of the Almighty, it's because it's a quote from verse one. 
you might want to ask Elizabeth, his wife, why would you give that book about such a tragedy? Why would you give that book a title from a psalm that says that we're going to be rescued through and from all those things? Well, she says this. The world called that story, called what happened a nightmare of tragedy. The world didn't recognise the truth of something Jim Elliot wrote in his diaries. The world doesn't recognise the truth that Jim Elliot wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See what Jim Elliot was talking about when he wrote that, that, that he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What did he mean by gaining something you can't lose? Well, he's talking about life beyond the grave. He's talking about something so solid, so resilient, life that is so certain that even death can't take it away from you. He's talking about the resurrection. You see, Jim Elliot's story doesn't end with his death. Your story will not end with your death because Jesus's story didn't end with his death. Three days later, Jesus rose again to new life. Jesus broke through death. Jesus was alive through death and not a hair on his head had been harmed. At least not permanently. See, Jesus promises, not just that that happens to him, but Jesus promises that he won't be the only one to go through that. Jesus promises that he forged a path. When he broke through death and out the other side, he was forging a path through death so that you could follow him. Follow him through death and into new life. See, this psalm looks forward to that day. Looks forward to that day when this new world will begin, when the whole world will be resurrected, where evil will be washed away once and for all, where it will be trampled out, where Satan's head will be crushed and that snake will, that snake of evil will, will be nowhere to be found. And this lion of death that terrorises everyone will be crushed and, and got rid of once and for all. That's in verse 12 and 13. That's what the psalm is looking forward to. Not just everyday suffering, but final, that final day when evil and wickedness and darkness and death is washed away once and for all. You see, if you're safe in Jesus, if you're safe in the stronghold of Jesus, if you're sheltered under the shadow of his wing, then there really is nothing to fear on that day. I mean, we really should fear because that thing which is kind of understandable where we make our homes away from God is actually a, a really dark thing. To turn away from God and make our home anywhere that isn't our maker is something, is something really wrong. Something that leads us to darkness and cold and death. Something that, that would mean we would need to be swept away when God swept away evil because there's a line of evil, that, a streak of it that goes through every human heart. And so the only way we can be safe on that day, the only way we can be safe when God remakes the world is if we're in him, in Jesus, in the stronghold, in this refuge, in the shelter, under his wing. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He, was, he had his wing around us and was taking all of that on his own feathers, on himself, suffering the cost that it takes for us to be safe. For us to be safe as God sweeps evil away once and for all and promises new life. So look, is God powerful enough to rescue you from, from whatever it is you're facing, from all the evils that we're facing in this world? Of course he is. And let's pray that he would, but let's not make that our ultimate home. You see, it's too small a thing for God. For a God that is this good, it's too small a thing just to try and improve our lives in this world for a while. 
God is in the business of remaking everything, of keeping us safe through everything. So Tim Keller puts it like this, the only things faithful people can lose in this world, in suffering, are things that are finally expendable. The real you, the one that God is creating, cannot be harmed. There's a later place in a book called Romans in the Bible that sums it up like this. And let's finish here. Where Paul says, one of Jesus's later followers, says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Because we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So what should we say? Look, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? No one. In, in, all, sorry, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, nothing, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So did you know that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty God? Well, is he yours? Can you say he is my refuge? He is my fortress. He's my God, the God in whom I trust. Amen.